reading for today comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verses 4 to 25. Listen now to the word of the Lord. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedlam and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush, and the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat, of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman, and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father, his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed." 
the word of the Lord. Lord be with you. Uh, welcome, everyone. Um, it's good to see uh, everyone and to be here. Um, I'm just going to look for a moment. Um, yeah, I want to um, thank Session, um, the rest of the church, uh, for allowing me this uh, summer to take a little break. Uh, it's definitely one I needed. And um, while I did miss uh, being with you all and, and participating in uh, things like the retreat and going to Kenya and the DR with you all uh, this summer, um, I was glad to be able to um, do some other things. Um, I know some of you have been wondering what I did uh, this summer for three months. Uh, I think I shared with some of you that uh, before I went, I wanted to do a few things. Uh, I wanted to lose some weight and get in better shape. Um, I did not. Um, I did want to watch some Star Trek. I did, though not as much as I wanted to. Uh, I had a few other projects that I hoped to uh, accomplish, but unexpectedly, um, I got interested in Dante. Uh, and his writings, particularly the Divine Comedy over the summer. And so I spent most of my waking hours uh, reading Dante. So that may not sound very restful to you, um, but for me it was a really, um, it was so nourishing and I, I felt so blessed to uh, have that time. And I'm sure that uh, over the course of this year, uh, what I learned will bleed into uh, some of the things that I will share with you. I also had the opportunity, of course, to worship with other communities of faith during the summer. And uh, it reinforced what I already knew, that uh, it's always interesting to see how different people uh, organize their worship, to hear different preachers. I hope you also got to enjoy different speakers this summer. Um, but really, worship becomes um, kind of, I think, just personal preference in many ways. And What's really, of course, important um, is the community, to be a part of a living and serving community. And so I think of like Sundays kind of like a family reunion, getting back together with uh, the extended family. And so I feel really glad to uh, be back uh, with you all today. I, d I do have to tell you, though, uh, it does feel a little weird. Um, I woke up this morning and uh, putting on a suit felt very, very strange. Um, and then even walking into this building felt a little bit off, like didn't quite seem, um, I don't know, normal or something. But, um, but yeah, I'm just really uh, glad to be here. Um, I do want to tell you that uh, this year, uh, as we did last year, we are going to uh, follow the narrative lectionary once again. Uh, the narrative lectionary, as you might remember, uh, is a series of readings uh, from September all the way to May from Genesis to Revelation, and so we're going to, uh, in these months, uh, hopefully get an overarching story, the story of God's promises and of God's redemption uh, in Jesus Christ. And so uh, we're gonna do year two of the lectionary readings um, in worship. 
We'll do year three in the small groups and our fellowship groups. And so uh, by the end of uh, May this next year, uh, we'll have completed the four years of the narrative lectionary. All right, let's pray together. God, thank you so much for this day that you have made and to be together in this, your house, to worship. Help us now, God, to hear your word and to revel in the splendor of your light and your love. And God, I pray now the the prayer that Paul prayed for the Philippians. I give thanks to you for every remembrance of Graceway, always praying with joy for all of them in every prayer because of their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that you, O God, who started a good work in this people, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to think this way about all of them because I have them in my heart and they are all partners with me in grace. For God, you are my witness how deeply I miss all of them with the affection of Christ Jesus. And I pray this, that their love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment so that they can approve the things that are superior and can be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. Our reading today from Genesis uh, is the familiar story of the creation of Adam and Eve. Um, But before I give the sermon today, I know we have all the children here today uh, in this joint service. So I thought I'd ask the children if they have any questions about the story of the creation of Adam and Eve. Any questions from any of our children? This might be the only time I ask No questions? Okay. That didn't go like I thought it was going to (laughs) go. All right. Well, the book of Genesis, uh, you must all be aware, there are actually uh, two creation stories. We have one story in chapter one and what you heard just now in chapter two. In chapter one, we have the story of the creation of the entire cosmos, and it is God who speaks everything into existence, or as C.S. Lewis suggested, God, God sings the universe into being. God is the poet. But in chapter two, as you just heard, which is a kind of a sequel to the first creation story, God does not really speak so much as he works creation. He's the the potter, the gardener, the surgeon 
who with his very hands gets down into the mud to create humanity and all of creation. The stories of creation, of course, raise many unanswered and unanswerable questions, both cosmological and anthropological. And some Christians have concluded that these stories are mere myths, that they are not really different from the kinds of origin stories that were being circulated around at the same time by the neighboring countries of the ancient Israelites. Then there are other Christians who want to cling to the idea of reading the, uh, the creation stories as if they were modern historical texts and believe that the creation occurred about 6,000 years ago. The Archbishop of Ireland, James Usher, famously wrote a massive book and calculated that the creation occurred on October 23rd, 4004 BCE. He was not the only one. Great luminaries, scientists, even Isaac Newton got in and concluded and calculated dates similar to that. We can understand these kinds of efforts in the context of the 17th century. But given what we know today about population genetics, about general cosmology, it's really a difficult position to hold. It's like today those who try to argue for something like a flat earth or perhaps, you know, something like the sun is still going around the earth. Even the greatest of the early church fathers, St. Augustine, even he said, I mean, he actually, he built an entire theology around Adam and Eve, and yet even he was able to say that to read the story of creation verbatim is childish. As a people of faith, we can hear these stories of creation and affirm the truths without dismissing it as childish fables, nor trying to defend it scientifically or historically. When I look at the moon, for example, I can't calculate mathematically its orbit. I can't explain the physics of its reflection of light. But I can still tell you the truth that I find the moon beautiful and compelling. Now that truth is not going to help you if you work for NASA and you have to work out the, the, the rocket trajectories for the Artemis project. But perhaps that aesthetic truth says something about why it is that we want to get to the moon in the first place. The story of the creation of an Adam and Eve does not and cannot answer the question of the origins of the human species in accordance with what we think of as modern and the modern scientific method. That is not the point. But the stories do address and do answer our deepest longings and questions about who we are, where we come from, why it is that we love and suffer the purpose for our existence and what our ultimate end may be. And so with that in mind, I want to just highlight this morning 
one key verse for our consideration. Verse 18 says this. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. First of all, this word man should really be translated as human. As human. In the Hebrew, this word is Adam or is Adam and it just means a human being. The word Adam is related to the word for earth, which is Adama. And so you have kind of like earthling and earth. And so the name of Adam really is a way of the scriptures telling us how closely we are related to the rest of creation. So this generic word for a human being, Adam, will of course later become the name of the man who gets the name Adam. But here, it's just talking about a human being. Is that clear? Okay. And so it's not speaking so much about this man, Adam, being alone, which is not good. It's really speaking in a, in a, in a broader sense. It is not good for the human being or for human beings to be alone. He will not be distinctly identified as a gendered man until at the end of this story when the woman is created. So when God declares that it is not good that the human being should be alone, it's a bit of a surprise. Remember in chapter one in the story of the, the, the universal creation, after each day, God declared again and again, it is good, it is good. But here, despite the overall goodness of creation, God says it is not good that the human should be alone. The human has everything in the Garden of Eden. Everything is provided for him, even the presence of God. And yet, God declares still it is not good because the human is alone. The psychologist Eric Fromm noted more than a half century ago, we are social creatures made anxious by our separateness. Likewise, C.S. Lewis wrote, as soon as we are fully conscious, we discover loneliness. We need others physically, emotionally, intellectually. We need them if we are to know anything, even ourselves. We need others even to know ourselves. Today, sociologists tell us that, the high, that higher rates of loneliness is associated with higher rates of depression, anxiety, hostility, increased rates of heart disease, cancer, and every other cause of death. Social isolation is on par with high blood pressure, obesity, lack of exercise, and smoking as a risk factor for illness and death. As I've said before, health-wise, it's better, it might be better, to eat five different flavored bags of potato chips with a half gallon of Coke with your friends than it is to eat a bowl of organic salad with light dressing. It is not good for the human 
to be alone. And we all know this. We all know this. Do you remember the beginning of the pandemic? Do you remember what that was like? When all of us were kind of stuck in our homes, we were afraid to even touch hands or uh, remember all the hand washing we used to do? We were all isolated and we were so removed from one another. We saw how lonely that was and how it was not good to be alone. We experienced that truth in a much deeper way. And yet, isn't it interesting here that God is the one who makes this declaration? I mean, it's not like God didn't know that it would not be good for the human to be alone. It's a very strange text when you think about it. It's not like God made a male and female bear, a male and female raccoon, male and female cow, like male, fem- like a pair of everything, and then he makes one human. And he's like, what am I missing here? <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 I should, right? I mean, that's, that can't be what's going on here. It's, it's, it's odd. Someone likened this passage to speed dating or a dating app where Adam is just swiping left as all the animals parade by one after the other. All of them come by to see what Adam would call them. But for Adam, it says, the human being, no fitting helper could be found. It suggests to me that God did so that Adam, the human being, could realize his own need through experience. Rather than like being instantly given knowledge and wisdom, like, I don't know, like in the matrix, you know, where you just get that information fed right into your brain. It suggests to me that we have to gain knowledge and wisdom through experience, through training, and through obedience to God's word. Maybe Adam saw a thousand animals walk by. And when he saw a dog, maybe he said, I'm going to call you man's best friend. But he realized dog might be his best friend, but that no animal could fit what God describes as a helper fit for him. He had to make that realization for himself. And so how does God turn, it is not good, into the declaration at the end of the creation story after God makes human beings in the image of God, male and female, It was very good. God puts Adam into a deep sleep, and out of his side, God makes this suitable helper, a helper that is fitting for him. This description of the woman, a helper fit for him, of course, has created all kinds of interpretation over the years, and so I want to unpack this a little bit with you. First of all, the word helper. It's been uh, misunderstood to mean someone that is less than, right? When you hear a helper, maybe you think of an assistant, right? Uh, Maybe a sous chef, an assistant, someone who is not really in charge, but someone who's going to just kind of, you know, help you. And this sort of understanding of helper has been used over the centuries to justify the subjugation of women in 
the family and in the church. But as you've heard before me say, the Hebrew word for helper here is ezer. And ezer is a word that is almost used always to describe God, as in God is my helper. When you pray, God, my helper, is there any thought, is there any hint that somehow God, my helper, is inferior or weaker or subordinate to me in any way? Of course not. It's just the opposite. The helper is stronger than me. That's why I call upon the helper. So really, if we want to be kind of objective about this text, it would be easier to make the counter-arguments that the woman is the final crowning achievement of God's creation and that the woman as the final act of God's creative act in the week of creation and that the woman is the stronger and the greater. We could make that argument. But notice, secondly, that God says, I will make a helper fit for him. Not just a helper, but one that is fitting. A suitable helper. And this is a word that means someone that is alongside. Someone that is next to you. Someone who is your counterpart. So I think perhaps in English, because of the kind of connotations that the word helper has, a word like partner or ally might be closer to what the text is getting at. And thirdly, you see here, the equality of the man and the woman is further conveyed by the fact that God creates the woman out of the side of the human. Now, I know, again, probably all of us grew up with the idea and the image of God taking a rib out of Adam's side and making a woman out of that one rib, right? That's the way our text read, and, and that's what it says. Uh, that's not wrong. <laughs> that's not wrong. But the word for rib is literally side or side room, the way it's used in the Bible. So it's a word that occurs like almost 40 times in the Bible, and every single time, without exception, it's always translated as side or side room. That's the way it's understood. And so it says that God took one from the side of the human. That's how it reads. And so, of course, we think, okay, one took a rib. But for me, you know, when you think about this, I find this suggestion that God took from the side of Adam very evocative. It suggests to me that Eve, or the woman, was not just, you know, like, take one ribbon, but the entire side of Adam. Right? Sometimes we say things like, um, couples will say, this is my other half, right? Or in my case, this is my better half. Right? We, t- we talk about it that way. And, and that's the sense. You know, maybe Jerry Maguire wasn't too far off the mark when he said, you complete me. That there is this sense in which the creation is taken from the side, which, which has, again, it, it furthers the sense of the creation of a partner. In the original creation, in the Garden of Eden, there is no sense of who's better, 
boys are not better than girls, right? There's no superiority. There's no, it's none of that. All we get from the text this morning in the original creation is incredible joy and connection. Look at how excited, how super excited Adam is. He's just met God's latest creation. He doesn't know anything about her, about this new creature. But he's just so excited to see another human being that he bursts out in poetry. He exclaims, she is the bone of my bones and the flesh of my flesh. And here, it's, there's, there's another wordplay here where he says, you know, she, she shall be uh, called woman because she was taken out of man. Just like in English, you know, the words man and woman, right? It's, it's related. It's the same in the Hebrew, ish and isha. It's, so he, he recognizes, he identifies himself that this is one with whom I am incredibly related. I think it's important for us to remember here that Adam identifies her here as woman and does not name her Eve at this point, right? Because when you, when you, when you name something or someone, it's to take responsibility for that, but it's also a way of kind of asserting your authority and power and dominion and even ownership, right? When, when, when scientists discover a new plant or new fungus or a, a new star, they get to name it because they discovered it. Parents, you know, you get to name your children, taking responsibility and dominion over them. And children, maybe, maybe you get to name your pets, your toys, your, your dolls, right? It's a way of saying, this belongs to me. When God created the heavens and the earth and God created the lights, God called the greater light, God named it the sun and the lesser light, the moon. And the human, Adam, in imitation, he got to call all the animals what he wanted to call them to signify humanity's dominion over the rest of creation. So for Adam to later name Eve, Eve, it's a sign, I think, of this misaligned relationship. But that happens later, after they're both kicked out of the Garden of Eden, after the relationship with God, with each other, and the rest of creation has been broken and disordered. Here, in the beginning, in the creation, Adam only joyfully recognizes the woman as a fitting partner and declares that they are one. You know, the very first words that any person, any human being speaks in the Bible are spoken by Adam. He doesn't talk. I mean, we assume he named the animals and he spoke, but we don't actually hear anything he says until this moment. Until there's another human being, there wasn't even really a need for speech let alone poetry. But now that they are no longer alone, both conversation and poetry are possible. And that is what God will later describe as very good. 
The story of creation reminds us all that our creation by our God is one characterized by joy and by grace and by connection. The God that is revealed in this creation story is one who intervened to make sure that what was not good got turned into very good. You know, this is not the story that is told by others and in other cultures. Certainly around the time that the Jews were writing this story and passing this story along, their neighboring countries and cultures told different stories. The Mesopotamians, for example, told about the creation of seven pairs of anonymous human beings. Nobody cared about them. They weren't important as individuals. The Babylonians and their creation stories talks about human beings being created out of the mud and the blood and the spit of a god. Blood and spit. They held contempt for human beings. In fact, they were created as slave labor to dig irrigation ditches that the lesser gods did not want to do. Against those stories, the ancient Jews told a different and far better narrative. Our God, our God blesses humanity. Each and every life matters. They're individualized as personified in Adam and Eve. Our God provides. Our God is willing to get down into the mud and is intimately involved in our creation and well-being. Our God provides for all of our needs. Against the powerful counter stories of their culture, this story endured. I think we have the same opportunity to witness to a better story, don't we? Isn't the story that we tell of the love of God, the redeeming love of God in Jesus Christ, isn't that a far better narrative than the kind of stories that are being told today by secular humanists, by cynical politicians, by pragmatic materialists, we have a far better story. The truth is, it is not good to be alone. And if we are honest, we can also say, it is also not good to be together. It's not always easy to be together. The reasons for that will be fully, more fully explained in the next chapter. We were not created for those difficulties. We were made to connect, to be related, to have joy in each other. And God is the one who provides us with allies and partners to make that happen. As Thomas Merton said, love is our true destiny. We do not find the meaning of our life by ourselves. We find it with one another. I hope that sounds familiar to all of you. You've been hearing me preach now over 20 years, and this is basically the same sermon I've preached every week, right? 
you, you know that I essentially just preach one sermon. <laughs> to be with, to be next to, to be partners, to be allies, to accompany one another. This is the word for encouragement. It's the name of the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the one who is called alongside to comfort, to strengthen. It's the name of Jesus, Emmanuel, God who is with us. And you see here in in, in our very creation, the echoes of God's presence built right into our DNA. It is not good to be alone. And, you know, this is not just talking about marriage. It's talking about human beings. It is not good for human beings to be alone. It's our fundamental nature as a people. This is who we are. And this is who God is. And this is God's will for us. Believe the word. And let this story fill you with joy and with hope. Please pray with me. Lord, we're thankful this day as we begin a new academic year for many of us to begin hearing and being reminded of the goodness in which you have created us and the connection for which we have been created. So God, help us to pursue those things which make for peace, for harmony, for connection. Help us to find our joy in you and in each other. Help us, God, to be for others a helper, an ally, a partner. Help us to experience your will, the purpose for which you have created us, to recognize in the other, in our brothers and sisters, that we are all intimately connected. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.